Romans 8, 18 to 25, from the Apostle Paul. That's why I don't think there's any comparison between the present hard times and the coming good times. The created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. Everything in creation is being more or less held back. God reigns in it until both creation and all the creatures are ready and can be released at the same moment into the glorious times ahead. Meanwhile, the joyful anticipation deepens. All around us, we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs. But it's not only around us, it's within us. The Spirit of God is arousing us within. We are also feeling the birth pangs. These sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. That is why the waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us, but the longer we wait, the larger we become, and the more joyful our expectancy. This is the word of the Lord. I will use that. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Well, hey, how are we? Great. Good, good. Well, this is... Um, a bit bittersweet. This is not my last message. Next week will be my last message to you, my church family. Um, and if there's one topic I have wanted to teach on for quite a while, but have not, it's the topic of heaven. And so over the next few Sundays, we will be focusing on the topic of heaven. We are in the season of Advent. And what does Advent mean? Well, Advent means the arrival of a notable person. And so who are we as Christians in this season of the year anticipating the arrival of the one that has already come, but at this time of the year we celebrate yet again the incarnation, which is what God the Son putting on human flesh to come and to live among us and to be with us. Incredible. But Jesus, while he was here on this earth, also talked about a second advent. And the second advent is also the arrival of a notable person, Jesus Christ, and it is his second coming. For Jesus said this in John 14, verses 1 to 3, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. 
This verse, as well as others, help us understand that after Jesus' death, his resurrection and ascension, going back to the Father, that Jesus promises that he will one day return again. And so, as I said, my hope in this Advent season is that we would look forward with greater anticipation and clarity to this next Advent, the second Advent, as we go through the traditional themes of hope, joy, peace, and love. Before we dig into the theme of hope, however, this morning, why don't we take a moment to quiet ourselves before the Lord, invite his spirit to speak to us, and then we will dig in some more. And so, Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you are with us. You promise your presence with us. Say where two or three are gathered in my name, there you are. And so we have no doubt as we trust you that you keep your promises and that you are gathered with us today. I pray by your spirit that you would do a miraculous work of bringing dead things to life. That there would be areas of our life that we have not thought about, considered, that you would expose to us and that your spirit would be like the balm upon a wound that brings healing. I thank you for what you're doing in this church community. I pray a blessing over it by your name, Jesus. Would you continue to grow into health and maturity what you have started? We trust you in your name. Amen. Well, last week we concluded a series in Ecclesiastes. In the last chapter of Ecclesiastes, this verse was read for us, and I want to review it again as we consider this topic of hope, Jesus' second coming, and as we look at heaven. This is what we read. The dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7. This verse poignantly reminds you and me of the reality of death. Death. According to the world population clock, an average, was, an average of 170,775 people die every single day. That's roughly 7,115 deaths every hour and 110 deaths every single minute. Now, if I've been on stage here already for roughly four minutes, this means that 440 people have died in the time that I have just been speaking worldwide. That's sobering. And yet death is a part of life. As Cam mentioned last week, the current mortality rates in the world are 100%, which reminds us that every single one of us will die. Yet despite this being the case, many of us, if we're honest, are extremely uncomfortable with the thought of death, thinking about it, talking about it, and even recognizing as a reality. Think about the lengths We even go to to try and prevent or to delay death. Now, while we could spend some time on the flip side of the coin, 
talking about what is now being termed as assisted dying or assisted suicide, death is generally something that each and every single one of us, we get a bit squirmish about. Case in point, do you ever hear somebody celebrating the fact that they get to go to a funeral? More often than not, you'll say, what do you, you ask somebody, what are you doing this week? They say, well, I have to go to a funeral. So why the discomfort with death? Well, I think I'm going I'm to mention a few reasons here. More than likely, there's going to be far more, so please don't hold me to just these. There's far more out there, I'm sure. One thing, however, is that I believe that many of us, we like to think of ourselves as invincible. Technology has certainly accentuated this reality, both for good and for bad. For some of us, it may be a, a painful experience or a trauma connected to the past death of a loved one in our lives. For some of us, it's a fear, a fear of death. For others, it's an emotional discomfort, not wanting to acknowledge the pain or other emotions that may be associated with it. There's denial of it. An overwhelming sadness for some of us is if I acknowledge it, it's going to happen. For the others of us, though, we might say, well, well, death, it's the enemy. And to this last reason, I would actually say that you're absolutely right. Death is the enemy. For death is a visceral reminder of our depravity, a short-circuiting of what God's desire for humanity was from the very beginning. Let's do some background work. Genesis 2, verses 15 to 17, we read this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you, shall, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. These first humans are eating from the tree of life. And they're told not to eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The next chapter, Genesis 3, verses 2 to 4. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. He's a deceiver. He's been doing the same thing since this time. And right away, the red flag should be going off in our minds about this serpent as he twists the words of God and he lies to Adam and to Eve. Tragically, if you know the story, Adam and Eve do in fact eat of the fruit of the tree and the consequence is not only their own death, but death to the entire human race. A direct consequence of their sin and the sin that now transfers to the rest of the human race. For as 1 Corinthians 15 verse 21 says, for as by a man came death. Now in addition to this physical death, the further consequences to humanity's sin according to the scripture is another spiritual death. The loss of fellowship and union and relationship with God. We see this in Genesis 3 verse 8. You can go to Ephesians 2 or Colossians 2 verse 13. But not only spiritual death, but eternal death. 
everlasting loss of fellowship with God. You can look at Matthew 5, verse 29 to 30. Romans 6, verse 23. Well, what does all this mean? Well, from a Christian perspective, yes, death is the enemy. And whenever someone dies, especially in cases that we would consider premature, we are viscerally reminded of this reality. And yet, the scriptures also have other things to say about death and also about our grief. Look with me to the screen. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13 But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep or those who have physically died, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Now we're asking ourselves the question as we read this, what do you mean grieve grieve with hope? Yes, hope, the first theme of Advent, but, but how? Well, the following verse. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Or how about a continuation of the verse that I said earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Jesus has made a way for you and I to escape death. And we are promised an even better future than we could ever imagine. Now, by escaping death, I do not mean that Christians avoid their earthly physical death, only that their physical death on earth is one part of the process of their eternal life of living forever with God. This is good news. Now, certainly this point raises a whole host of questions. How does this work? What happens when I die? And so let's dig into a few of these questions. This first one being, what happens when we die? Scripture teaches that when you and I die, we face an immediate judgment. This judgment, scholars call a judgment of our faith, not a judgment of our works, which will come later, and I'll describe for us in a moment. At this time, if you, if you have put your faith in Jesus, if you've trusted in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection on your behalf, your human spirit goes to present heaven. God's space, the place where God dwells. I'll dig into why present heaven in a moment. For as Ephesians 2 verse 8 to 9 and Titus 3 verse 5 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Or Titus 3 verse 5, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. But if you have not put your faith in, In Jesus, the human spirit goes to what is known as present hell. For as Romans 3 verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What this means is that our default state without Christ, 
Our default destination is eternity apart from God. We are like laptops without power cords. We are like cell phones without a charge. We will eventually die. Now, the immediate reality of either of these destinations is highlighted in other places in the scriptures. Luke 23, verse 43, Jesus says on the cross to the thief, Today you will be with me in paradise. Or 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, Paul to the Corinthian church, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Philippians 1, verse 23, My desire is to depart and to be with Christ for that is far better. We can then look at Luke 16, verses 19 to 26, in which Jesus tells a parable. I'll read it here for us. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish. In this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. I want you to simply notice in this parable, we could go deeply into it, but both men are conscious, aware of their current state and their condition. Now, we could spend a whole host of time talking about the present heaven or the present hell. Scripture emphasizes the long-term heaven, the long-term eternal reality apart from God more so, and so I want to focus there. So if there is a present heaven and hell, does this mean that there is a future heaven and hell? And the answer to this question is yes, as the scripture indicates, but maybe you haven't considered this before. Go with me, if you have your Bibles, to Revelation 21, verses 1 to 2. Revelation 21, 1 to 2. We read this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Here, John, in Revelation, has a vision of the new heaven and earth, which in my view will be a purified and cleansed version of our current earth from all infection of evil, suffering, sin, and death. Now, if this reminds you of Eden, Genesis 1 and 2, it's actually intended to. For as the broad arc of the biblical story tells this in creation, on the screen here, you're going to see an image of 
heaven and earth, I simply want you to think of heaven as the, the place, the dimension that God dwells, and think of earth as the place that humans dwell. In creation, Genesis 1 and 2, what do we know of God's space and human space? They're overlapping. They're not separated. They're together. Because human beings are not sinners. They can be in the presence of a perfect and holy and just God. Yet then in Genesis 3, what happens? Humanity rebels against God. They do not obey him. And so what happens? Human space and God's space are separated. What most theologians believe is that it's not that these are different spaces, but they're different dimensions within the same space. Throughout the story of the Old Testament, we, we do see an overlapping of these two spaces, but only in a couple of places. One is the tabernacle. You may be familiar with the story of the tabernacle. What is the tabernacle? It's this moving presence of God with people in the holy of holies. You maybe know the story as well, that the tabernacle, then we have the temple. And again, the holy of holies is there. Yet humanity can only enter the holy of holies. It's the great high priest once a year. And how does he enter it? Through the blood sacrifice. Through blood sacrifice. This is where heaven and earth overlap. But then what's the next part of the story? Redemption in the Gospels. Where heaven and earth partially overlap. How? Through Jesus. If you're familiar with New Testament theology, what is Jesus called? The temple. God with people. What is he also? The sacrificial lamb. Making a way for people and God to be in relationship once again. And then what we read is that God's spirit upon faith in Jesus is given to human beings, which means God's space, his kingdom, is breaking in. But as you and I know, there's still the presence of sin in the world, brokenness, injustice, the weariness that we experience in the world. But then the final act is restoration. And this is what being described here in Revelation 21 and 22. When heaven and earth will fully overlap once again, where God's space and human space will be the same space, heaven and earth, two dimensions in the same space will be one dimension again. Incredible question, however, is what must happen to the present earth based on sin and injustice in order for this restoration to happen? And the answer to that question is something I touched on earlier, but this is what the scriptures call that there will be a last judgment, which the scripture speaks about and which takes place at the end of the old earth, but prior to the new earth. Revelation 20 verses 11 to 13. And after Christ returns, there will be a resurrection for believers to eternal life in heaven and a resurrection of unbelievers for eternal existence in hell. You can look at John 5, verse 28 to 29. And at this time, believers, those who have put their faith in Jesus, will give an account for their lives. And while it's not our works that save us or affect our salvation, we do read that our works affect our rewards. Romans 14, 10 to 12, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, Revelation 2, verse 26 to 28, and also chapter 3, verse 21. I'll simply read 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. 
But we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. However, those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life will also be judged by the works that they have done. And since they are not covered by Christ's sacrifice and are still in their sin, they cannot enter the presence of a just and holy God and will therefore spend eternity apart from him. Revelations 20, verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, Jesus speaks about hell more than anyone else in the scriptures. Matthew 10, verse 28. Matthew 13, verse 40 to 42. Mark 9, verse 43 to 44. As I already mentioned, John 5, verse 28 to 29. Randy Alcorn, in his incredible book called Heaven, makes this comment about eternity apart from God. Scripture says of those who die without Jesus, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Because God is the source of all good and hell is the absence of God, hell must also be the absence of all good. Likewise, community, fellowship, and friendship are good, rooted in the triune God himself. But in the absence of God, hell will have no community, no camaraderie, no friendship. I don't believe hell is a place where demons take delight in punishing people and where people commiserate over their fate. More likely, each person is in solitary confinement, just as the rich man is portrayed alone in hell in Luke 6, verse 22 to 23. Misery loves company, but there will be nothing to love in hell. Brothers and sisters, I believe we do no one any favors by avoiding this reality. If Jesus speaks of it, we must also think and speak about it. Our hearts also should bleed as God's does. For as 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing what? That any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Praise God that this is his heart that all should come to repentance to spend eternity and fellowship with him forever. Do we want this as well? Francis Chan wrote a book called Erasing Hell. And I remember um, in the first couple chapters of the book, he says, if you're looking forward to reading this book, you should never look forward to reading a book about hell. But we should be aware of it. So we are aware if we avoid death, certainly we are going to avoid this topic. Question thirdly, however, is what will this new heaven, this new earth, our eternal home be like? What is the hope of heaven? Now, I'm going to get more into this next week. I'm titling next week's message, The Joy of Heaven. Revelation 21 tells us that there will be physical restoration, both of the cosmos and of our human bodies. There'll be relational restoration. There'll be systemic restoration. But I love how Randy Alcorn breaks this down in the following graphs that I've created for us on the screen behind me. 
He breaks it down into past, thinking of Genesis 1 and 2, present, thinking of now, and then our future, thinking of Revelation 21 and 22 and the new heavens and the new earth. You can follow the graph across this way. In Genesis 1 and 2, in the past, we had original mankind. In the present, we have fallen mankind. Some believe and are transformed. In the future, we have resurrection mankind or humankind. In the past, we had the original earth. In the present, we have fallen earth with glimmers of the original. In the future, we will have a new resurrected earth. In the beginning, in Genesis 1 and 2, there was, there was no shame. In the present, there is shame. In the future, there will be no shame or even potential for shame. In the beginning, there was the tree of life in Eden. Mankind can eat of it. In present, tree of life is in paradise. We're cut off from it. In the future, the tree of life is in the new Jerusalem, and we can eat from it forever and always. In the very beginning, sin is unknown in Genesis 1 and 2. In the present, sin corrupts. Its power and penalty assaulted and defeated by Christ. But in the future, sin will be forever removed. In Genesis 1 and 2, there was no death. In the present, death permeates all. In the future, death will be forever removed. In the beginning, the first Adam reigned. In the present, the first Adam falls. Mankind reigns corruptly with glimpses of good. The second Adam comes. And in the future, the last Adam will reign as the God-man with mankind as co-heirs and delegated kings. In the beginning, God was walking with humans in the garden. In the present, we're cut off from God. In the future, God will dwell face to face with humans again. In the beginning, creation and mankind were perfect. In the present, creation and mankind are tainted by sin. In the future, creation and mankind will be restored to perfection. In the beginning, there was one marriage of Adam and Eve. In the present, there are many marriages. In the future, there will be one marriage of Christ and the church. In the beginning, there was paradise. In the present, paradise is lot but sought. There's glimmer seen. We have a foretaste of it. But in the future, paradise will be regained and it will be magnified. And this new heaven and new earth will be our forever ever home. Heaven and earth completely overlapping, overlapping, inhabiting the same dimension once again. And brothers and sisters, this future is the basis and foundation of our current hope. Which Jesus accomplished for us in his life, in his incarnation, in his death, in his resurrection, and in his ascension. Look how, how Paul comments on the nature of this hope in the present. This is what Sarah read for us earlier from the message. I'll now read from it from the ESV. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, are any of you suffering? Are any of you weary? Are any of you struggling? They're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. If you remember from our Ecclesiastes series, this futility is also vanity. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
And not only the, the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly for the adoption as sons. We'll talk about this more next week. The redemption of our bodies. I want you to just notice how many times hope appears here. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for whose hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Or how about Peter in 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 1 verse 3 to 7, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I find it amazing in the Romans text, just thinking of it again, that our current condition in this world is, is described as childbirth. I've been there for two of them. It is a painful process, but what comes at the end? New life. And when Christ returns and the new heavens and new earth, this is why that analogy is used. New life. Or how about 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9 if you're not convinced? But as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. This is our future, our eternity with him. We cannot imagine. We can never imagine. So brothers and sisters, as we face trials, challenges, hardships, seasons of difficulty and death, may we live and grieve with the living hope of heaven in our minds and in our hearts. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you're not sure if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, I want to invite you to do that today, to trust Jesus and what he has done and accomplished for you on your behalf. Next week, we will turn to the joy of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that you desire that none should perish, but that all would come to repentance. God, if we're honest, we all put our faith in something. Some of us put our faith in you. But God, even those of us that put our faith in you, we struggle at times to put our faith in other things, and we do it. Yet our redemption and our eternity is secured in you, Jesus, and so I thank you for that. God, there's other, uh, others of us, Lord, Lord Jesus, that put our faith in other things. More often than not, we put our faith in ourselves and what we think we can do for ourselves. We try to manage our lives, but as we just came through Ecclesiastes, we were reminded that as we look to each of these things, the places we look to, they pale 
they pale in comparison to you, Jesus. They're faulty, they're vanity. Jesus, Satan is continuing to deceive us. He continues to lie to us, telling us that all of these places are valuable, that we can do it on our own. And yet he is, he, he is a liar. And we will die. So God, may we not believe his lie of you will not surely die. May we not believe that we are invincible. But Lord Jesus, would we live with hands wide open, surrender to you, trusting you with our future, knowing what is to come through what we read about you in your word and this future that you're preparing for us. Jesus, we, we pray at times that you would return soon. But Lord Jesus, we pray that more people would come to a saving knowledge of you. And God, that we would be a people whose heart is broken for lost people. Would we see them as you see them, Jesus? In your name we pray. Amen.